20-year-old me playing basketball for the Regina Cougars never envisioned that a role like this would exist or that I would certainly be in it. In fact, back even in that day, I didn't even realize that Indigenous students could go to graduate school. I see post-secondary institutes as opportunities where we can find ourselves again and where young people can find themselves again and find a community and an, an avenue to develop that strength and reconnection with culture and, and language and provide healing and opportunity back into our communities. Hi, I'm John Lajemodier, and welcome to Go Far Together, a new podcast from the University of Regina that introduces you to some of our university's brightest thinkers, from outer space to reconciliation, from first responders' mental health to the connection between cannabis and the NFL. We'll explore how these researchers are changing the world and how we understand it right here on the prairies. Join us as we go far together. I'm an Indigiqueer, Cree Métis, Two-Spirit woman. Montreal Lake in the north is where my family is from, but I live in Pile of Bones, or more commonly known as Regina, Saskatchewan, which is in the south of what is uh, currently known as uh, Canada. I also said that I'm just very happy to be here today. When Laurie Campbell first came to the University of Regina to play basketball as an undergraduate in the early 1990s, she never imagined she would one day be working here, helping to reshape how the university engages with Indigenous issues at every level. I didn't really have much of an interest in going to university, but I was good at sports. The adoptive family that I grew up with leveraged that because they wanted me to go to university. I think sometimes we maybe overlook the sport pathway to university because it was then during that where I actually realized that university was a place for me and that I just really enjoyed it. And I started uh, taking Indigenous studies and, uh, you know, I often say that that's where I started to learn about who I was as an Indigenous person from professors, Indigenous professors and peers who knew about who we were as Indigenous peoples. Lori began learning everything she could about her ancestry and culture. This included learning the full extent of Canada's subjugation of Indigenous peoples through residential schools and other policies that tore apart families and aimed to destroy entire cultures. For Lori, an intergenerational survivor of the residential school system and the 60s scoop, this became deeply personal. Starting in the 1880s and much of the 20th century, more than 150,000 children from hundreds of Indigenous communities across Canada were forcibly taken from their parents by the government and sent to what were called residential schools. Funded by the state and run by churches, they were designed to assimilate and Christianize Indigenous children by ripping them from their parents, their culture, and their community. After residential schools fell out of favor, you know, the government decided that we should take Indigenous children and adopt them into non-Indigenous families, and that would be sort of the new assimilation policy. Between the 1960s and the 1980s, tens of thousands of Indigenous kids were taken from their families and put into the child welfare system. It's known as the 60s scoop, and its effects are still being felt today. With the support of other Indigenous students and faculty at the University of Regina, 
Lori began a search that would continue to this day, locating her biological family. I have a file folder that is probably about two inches thick of documentation of writing to different government departments right up until present day really as I'm still trying to get uh, some specific information but of trying to find out who I was and where I came from and who my family was. Eventually she was able to locate a letter from the government stating that she was the oldest of eight siblings but the letter had no identifying information on who the siblings were. I had to process that. I was I was young. I was angry a bit. Like I just I didn't know. I didn't understand. And 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 I was uh, struggled a lot. But coming into the university also helped guide my process on this. And so I started the search. And I was like, oh my goodness, I have all these siblings, and I can't go collect them all. I can't take care of them. I can barely take care of myself. But I I continued on with the search. With little information other than the knowledge that she was born in Regina she eventually was able to locate an adoption order with her birth name on it. So I went to the public library and got those big yellow phone books <laughs> that we used to have. And I had thought that uh, my birth mom might be living in uh, Saskatoon and started looking up phone numbers. There was no Google then. And then I came home and started phoning and uh, it was terrifying. And most of the numbers I got either not in service or no answer. This one particular number was for somebody else in the same building, but same last name. And so I called them and I actually got through and and I said, you know, I said, uh, I'm looking for Brenda Campbell. I think she lives in your building. You have the same last name. And do you know her? And this person on the phone was so polite and was like, yes, Uh, can I ask who's calling, please? And I was like super stressed and I was 27. And I uh, just kept saying, you know, if you know her, like, could you please see if she could come to the phone? I can't get a hold of her. I'd really like to talk to her. And eventually he uh, says, I'll go see if she's home. This woman came to the phone and I literally asked her, like probably like 20 questions based on what I knew. And, and, you know, I asked her if she had a daughter in, you know, 1972 and, you know, what she named her and, and all these things. And like, and that was really more than enough to know, but your mind plays tricks. Anyways, eventually I said, well, I said, you know, I'm your daughter and, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. But, you know, she starts yelling in a, you know, in a happy way to the man who answered the phone and who happens to be my uncle and says, uh, you know, it's Lorianne, it's Lorianne, I told you she would be the first to come find us. And then she just started talking and telling me about who I was, you know, that experience of also having talking to somebody for the first time who knew who I was when I was young, because I had never had that before. And, and so she was key to also helping me connect to, you know, family that had stayed together. But the search to find my siblings who had also been taken over multiple years and spread across several provinces took a a much longer time. And so from starting to search for my mom in I think 91 until when I physically was in contact with my last sibling that I found was about 25 years. So I'd spent my entire adult life doing that. While finally locating her family members brings joy, The legacy of colonization and assimilation weigh heavily on these discoveries. Sometimes people want to romanticize that a bit and and say like, oh, well, this is great. It's a happy ending. And what I want people to know about that and what I tell people who are searching 
the assimilation policies, the impact of residential school in the 60 Scoop has had devastating impacts on our families and our communities. And there is a lot of grief. While I was taken, there were people who were left behind who knew I was taken. You know, my uncle had wrote a song uh, about me, which I now have, you know, that he had played over and over about me because I was the first taken. I was the oldest. And I wouldn't say it's like a happy ending. It's it's a everybody is is struggling and the system that was supposed to take care of us and and create a better future for us has actually just caused devastating harm. And we're just one one family group of thousands across this country. I think for Indigenous peoples, there, there many of us come from residential school survivors, 60 scoop survivors. I'm first generation in my family not to attend residential school. I come from a 60 scoop survivor. That loss of culture identity is huge. Keenan Cummings is a program coordinator at the Tatawa Student Centre. He met Laurie 10 years ago when he was a student programming events for Indigenous students. For all the pain that's come from Laurie's journey, her story is having an impact on other survivors looking for answers. When Laurie shares her story and where she comes from, it's a hard story, but the beauty and where she's at now, that reconnection with family, it's hard because sometimes, you know, we have anger. When Lori speaks, you hear all of the emotions in her voice from the hard times to the happiness she now has with her mother. And I think the inspiration that Lori provides to Indigenous peoples, but also two-spirited peoples, is it's huge. Lori identifies as two-spirit and indigiqueer, terms that embrace both her Indigenous and queer identities. People ask me about that term, and, and we talk about it within the Two-Spirit community. And what I, I would want people to know about it is it's a broad term. It's English and Roman orthography. It's a new term. It's a modern term. But what we have learned is that many of our languages had words for more than one gender. Our cultures were very much role-based versus gender-based. When I say that I'm Two-Spirit, I'm also thinking about my role within ceremonial circles and my leadership and responsibilities within our community within that particular way. And there are, you know, special spaces for everybody. And that's one of them. And so I take that responsibility very seriously to learn and to be available for, you know, those younger than me. I'm thankful for Lori walking with me on my journey of learning the the two-spiritedness, that the advocacy that she does for the two-spirited community is is huge. Lori has organized and participated in many two-spirit ceremonies internationally, providing a space for two-spirited Indigenous peoples to connect and celebrate. It's important. It's needed. And, and it's not just here on campus, you know, it's, it's across, I think, internationally. You know, it's, it's the ceremonies that she has gives Two-Spirit the opportunity to still feel connected to their culture, their identity, to feel the same as while, while they're around others and others that they feel that they're connected with. We talk a lot about words now, and one of the words that uh, we've been using in the Cree language, and I said it in my introduction, is Tustawiniawak, which is a word that sort of identifies as like the in-between people. And I like that one a lot because I, for me... You know, I find myself 
often like just in between in, in these in between spaces, whether it's indigenous, non-indigenous, male, female, binary, mainstream, non-indigenous po- politics and indigenous politics. It's a challenging space. It can be very volatile, very challenging on mental health, and in particular for women, for racialized women, for queer racialized women. In all honesty, my gut reaction was to say no. But it was a conversation with her aunt, the author, playwright, and activist Maria Campbell, that eventually changed her mind. Maria is such a legend. Her work and her legacy as a, a Métis author and artist has influenced and encouraged countless Métis people. I remember a warm kitchen on a stormy winter night. I'm sitting on the floor with my chicham and the old ladies. The room is full of grandpas, mamas, papas, aunties, uncles, and cousins. There is laughter, hot, sweet tea, and the smell of red willow tobacco. She's a member in my family that I was able to find. And I had this flashback to like going for lunch with her one day. And I was young. I was in my 20s. And at one point she says, when are you going to get into politics, my girl? And I'm like, why would I do that? And she just kind of like paused. But in one of those ways, an auntie pauses and you know, they're not really happy with what you said, but they're not really going to scold you. And then she just kind of said, you know, she said, you know, to be Indigenous is to be political. Years later, she would receive a phone call from the new Democratic Party, hoping to enlist her as a candidate in the upcoming federal election in Waterloo. The NDP was formed in 1961, driven strongly by the ideals of organized labor forces. The party represented progressive-minded farmers, workers, and middle-class people who were interested in greater equality. Am I political? I need to think about, do I have a good reason to say no, instead of just saying no because I don't feel like it. And so I realized that, you know, my entire career and personal and professional life, like, has been quite political. So I flew home, I I called my auntie, I talked to people that knew me. You know, I have some friends who are retired white male bureaucrats who know know that system and they know me well. And I'm like, what do you think? Like, do you think this is something I should do. And at the end of a few weeks of consultations, there was no good reason for me to say no. There was a lot of things I really liked about it. I mean, I love door knocking and like just talking to people and like, what's going on and what do you need? Now it is voting time. The power is in your hands. And tonight we find out the results. This is election night 2019. For someone who had only lived in the community for two years, she shored up an impressive 15% of the vote. We had a goal, and that was increasing the votes and building some relationships. And I feel pretty proud about the fact that I had increased the votes from the last two federal elections. At least for the moment, Laurie has put aside running for office and is working on her PhD in social justice education with a focus on Indigenous women's leadership in post-secondary education at the University of Toronto. I can't say I have a whole lot of hobbies right now because I need to finish my PhD. And so I have a lot of books. Half of them are PhD related. The other half are ones that I want to read. But I've told myself I can't until I read my PhD ones. At the same time, she's serving as the Vice President of Indigenous Engagement here at the University of Regina. One of her key roles is making sure Indigenous students feel welcome in a system that was not originally built for them. To do so, 
she's helping lead an institution-wide strategic plan on Indigenous engagement, the first of its kind at this scale. It's an inaugural position at the University of Regina, and these kinds of positions at the senior executive level have really only come about in recent years, I would say. And they're really key positions because oftentimes what has happened is when universities' leadership feels that there might be an issue that relates to Indigenous peoples and they're looking for some guidance on that, that's when they come to Indigenous people on campus. And the impact of a role like this is that it allows me to be at the decision-making table of all the decisions really around the university and the, you know, the budget. So it allows sort of that Indigenous lens and my professional expertise to be infused in all aspects of decision-making at the university. While the Office of Indigenous Engagement offers valuable support and resources for Indigenous students, it's also transforming the way in which the university engages with Indigenous peoples at all levels. What are we doing to ensure that we're providing space and opportunities for Indigenous faculty and staff and uh, mentoring into uh, leadership positions and supporting Indigenous research and Indigenous ways of doing research? Or how are we supporting economic reconciliation? And universities, we spend a lot of money, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's programming at our university. The way that Lori and her department tackles things is amazing. Being able to build that with culture, that relationship with various departments, but to still go out in community, bring in various knowledge keepers, elders to work with, to help guide them is crucial in bridging that gap and but also bringing in that decolonization of, of what the university looks like, but still empowering Indigenous students to come here on campus. I do spend a lot of time still in fitness, both for mental health and just because it's kind of my stress relief, but I don't play basketball or anything super competitive anymore. That may be understating things a bit. She recently appeared as a competitor on the CBC reality TV series, Canada's Ultimate Challenge, a physically grueling obstacle competition spread across the country. In the history of the entire series, she was the oldest female player and the only two-spirit person to ever compete. Individually, you're 24 strangers, but together you make up six teams. To help unlock their full potential, each team will be coached by a legendary Canadian athlete. Let's go! We are about to push you to your limits. We travel across the country and we turn our fantastic nation into one great obstacle course. Donovan Bailey. Hall of Fame, once the fastest man in the history of the planet. Was Laurie's coach on the show and saw her tenacity firsthand. Laurie, I, I think, is Mentally, probably the strongest player that I had because of, of her background as an athlete, her background as a woman, being Indigenous, being queer. She is probably the person that has gone through the most in life and clearly one of my favorite people and, uh, and a great player for my squad. Certainly, she's someone that if she's in your corner, you've got a soldier in your corner and she will go to the ends of the earth to defend you. And that's what I mean for Lori. She can do anything she wants, you know, it, it don't matter for her to, to take that opportunity to go out and do all these obstacles, these challenges that are, are so hard on your body. It is huge. And I said, this is your land. 
get that baton and go own this. And, and that's what she did. It's about aging well. It's also about role modeling fitness for women and indigenous youth. I always have fitness goals and it's about, it's about my mental health and things like that as well. And so I've uh, worked really hard. With her long and varied resume, her proudest moments are close to home. What I'm feeling most proud of is my mom, as she's aging, life has been just really, really difficult for her. And one of the things she said to me when we first met was not that she was worried that I'd be angry that she wasn't able to keep me or any of those other sorts of things, but she was worried that I would be angry because she made me Indigenous. And it stuck with me and has broke my heart because with that, I, I feel all the pain and struggles that she has felt and she's been a target of because she's been Indigenous. And so for me, being out and unapologetically proud of being Indigenous is like a resistance to to that. I'm in a position where I am the one at the table to bring that knowledge forward and to share and elevate voices of those who aren't in the room. And so when I worry that I may not know what I'm doing, I remind myself that it's not really about me. I just need to speak truth to power, whether my voice shakes or not. If I don't, and, and I am in these spaces where I'm the only Indigenous person, I might as well not be in there and I might as well step back and let somebody else do it. Lori Campbell won't be stepping back anytime soon as her vital work with Indigenous engagement at the university continues. Years after first stepping foot on campus as an undergraduate basketball player, does it feel like things have come full circle? You know, it absolutely does. 20-year-old me playing basketball for the Regina Cougars never envisioned that a role like this would exist or that I would certainly be in it. And in fact, back even in that day, I didn't even realize that Indigenous students could go to graduate school. And I think that's part of the full circle, right? And why I have such a deep passion for education and the opportunity post-secondary institutes can provide for Indigenous people because there's um, much disruption for many of us and our opportunities to learn within our communities of origin in a positive, healthy way. But I see post-secondary institutes and the Indigenous leaders before me as opportunities where we can find ourselves again and where young people can find themselves again and find a community and an, an avenue to develop that strength and reconnection with culture and, and language and provide healing and opportunity back into our communities. That has played a big role in why I came back to work in the post-secondary a number of years ago and wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Go Far Together. Be sure to check out our next episode featuring Dr. Nick Carlton whose groundbreaking work with first responders is revolutionizing the way we treat trauma and destigmatize mental health. And they really are standing between us and our darkest hours. They are the ones that are rushing into the darkness, bringing what light we can offer as a community. Thanks again. And be sure to like and follow this podcast and visit uregina.ca to learn more about the groundbreaking work at the University of Regina. You can catch Canada's Ultimate Challenge on Thursdays at 8pm on CBC and CBC Gem.